0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writer's Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Welcome to the draft, a reading show. Each session, Lighthouse instructors recruit members from the current workshops to read on a given topic in front of a live audience. In October 2011, our topic was Know Thyself. And the readers are novelist Tyron Brown. Nonfiction writer Christy Bailey, poet Zayden Latito, and short story writer Jim Ringel.
1: Hi everybody, welcome to the draft 11.0, right? Is it 11.0? Know Thyself. That's the name of the draft, and I, I encourage you also to know thyself because that's important for everybody, I think. Yeah, so uh, welcome to 1515 um, Race. Yeah. <laughs> um, for how many people... How many is this your... How many people... How many, This is your first time here. What do you think? Nice pile of bricks, huh? Yeah, it's pretty nice. And I think we can pay for it. I think. We'll see. Um, it's very exciting. I miss the Feral House desperately. But um, this is a really amazing space. And if you want... I can tell you a full history about it. And it just takes like 45 minutes. It'd be really, really exciting. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike Henry. I'm the executive director of Lighthouse. Um, I'm also a co founder. Uh, Can't believe that. We started uh, 14 years ago. Andrew Dupree, program director, co founder. (laughs)
2: She said fifteen.
1: Yeah, it's, it's more like fifteen. You know, she does that, and uh, you know, for the past three years we've gone on the thirteenth annual Grand Lake Retreat every summer. So, um, yeah, it happens. It's math. Math, you know, it's it's really what it feels like, not really how many actual years, right? In writer years, it was it's been at least twenty twenty five years. Um, Thanks for coming. I really appreciate uh, you all being here. Uh, everybody, got a, everybody got a chair? Yeah? A few people? There's a gi- and there's some more chairs over there. And there's a gigantic bean bag. Help yourself. At least four people can sit on that with Carrie, right? You don't have to hold it. <laughs> you don't have to hold his hand, but he likes it if you hold his hand. Um, um, so to get us started, we have four great readers, and to get us started, I wanted to read a poem by Mary Carr. Is that okay? You sure? Yeah? I don't have to.
2: All right.
1: I'm not sure how this fits in with Know Thyself, except yeah, everything fits with Know Thyself, right? Speculate
3: Thyself.
1: Speculate Thyself, yes. Or Pluck Thyself, because the title of this poem is Pluck. Now that sounds weird. <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that. Sometimes I do that. I say things and wish I could take it back. And it's on the podcast now. Okay, uh, this is from her latest book called Sinner's Welcome. Pluck. Well, this fits with the weather. That spring snow fell late and long to clog every road away from the house my marriage had withered in and whose mortgage I could scarcely afford. Because my son was young and my academic check went poof each month about day 10, I developed pluck, a trait much praised in Puritan texts, which favor the spiritual clarity suffering brings. Pluck also keeps the low-cost, high-producing poor digging post holes or loading deep-fat fryers or holding tag sales where their poor peers come to haggle over silver pie slicers once boxed special for a bride. This wasn't real poverty in America, but it soured my shrunk soul to its nub Nights I lay on my mattress on the floor studying the clock face with its flipping digits. One day I woke to sun, then the grass pushed up and my son trapped dozens of crickets in a pickle jar's sharp upended air. In an old aquarium he laid a shaggy carpet of clover. Apple hunks and a mustard lid filled with water, covered with a screen, weighed with the dictionary so the cats couldn't get in. On mothering Sunday, when one is obliged to revere whatever bitch brought one to this hard world, my son led me down to a room where crickets sang as if I were the sun, which I was, I guess, to him and him to me. After that, when a creditor rang to bark his threats, I set the phone down on the counter so he could hear the crude creatures plucked from the weeds by the boy and what they sang. Thanks. <laughs> October 22nd, don't forget. Um <laughs> So it's my pleasure to introduce the person who will introduce the first reader, and that is Bill Henderson. Yeah. An incredibly talented writer, an amazingly handsome man, and one of the funniest people I know. Uh, Give it up for Bill Henderson. Thanks, Mike.
4: I'm very happy to introduce Taryn Brown, the first reader tonight. She, um, she, I first heard about her last year, it was about a year ago, and a a friend of ours, Anne Randolph, um, said, I have this friend who's a writer, she's a poet, and she's starting on fiction, and she's fantastic, how would you like to have her in the advanced workshop? And I said, send me her work. So she did, and you could tell immediately that she was a very talented writer, Very rich, beautiful prose. And I don't think she would mind if I said that she also didn't know how to write fiction. (laughs) It was just page after page of dense text with no paragraph breaks. But within all that, there was this beautiful, beautiful writing. And um, she has made huge leaps every class she's taken. And um, she's writing a beautiful novel that very much touches on the life we're living now. Opens into a magical past, and um, I just can't wait for it to be finished and be out there. So here she is, Taryn Brown.
5: So this is chapter one Grandma, be careful. Louise yelled up into the dress of her Grandma Kirby, who balanced on top of a ladder, leaned against a house of peeling paint and empty windows. The family who had once lived in the house had disappeared. Nothing said. A week later, a crew of men had hauled in a dumpster and a trailer, cleaned out all the mattresses and appliances, and then boarded up every hole and broken window. "'I'll be as careful as I can. You just hold on to the ladder, Louis.' "'Kirby said down to Louise as she pulled from her dress pocket a hammer, "'and with the claw of it she went to prying and pulling on the corners of a board "'that was nailed over a broken attic vent. "'Grandma Kirby claimed there were pigeons trapped in the attic, unable to get out. "'Louise heard them inside, flapping their wings and cooing. "'Her heart ached for their freedom. "'It had been a day and a night since the board had been nailed to the side of the roof.' Pigeons gathered and waited in nearby trees and rooftops, cooing and warbling as Kirby Dirk grunted at each stubborn nail while her granddaughter waited below. One more and we'll be done. Hang on, she said to Louise and to the pigeons. Louise was imagining how the pigeons would come out, forcefully or carefully. When Kirby yanked with both hands so hard the boar came out with such force, she flew backwards off the ladder despite Louise's white knuckled grip on it. She landed with a thump and a grunt in a patch of plum trees. Louise ran to her, positive she could survive this. Kirby lay in a colorful nest of scarves that had been just a moment ago wrapped around her head. Her glassy green eyes reflected the sky. "'Grandma, are you okay?' Louise screamed. Kirby Dirk lay there, smiling, as she looked up into the sky. "'Look, Louise!' Louise kneeled beside her, put her hands on Kirby's shoulders. Grandma, can you get up? Get up! Louis! look, goddammit! Her eyes sparkled with sunlight as her body lay limp. What Louise heard above her, the flapping of wings and the cooing of pigeons, she now saw. The birds billowed out into the sky from the small hole in the empty house. Their iridescent feathers and wide open wings made a brief and moving shadow over them. The two women watched as the waiting pigeons flapped their wings in greeting and joined the flight of birds out of the trees and through the blue sky. Louise looked back down at her grandma Kirby, whose eyes suddenly went from clear to milky as her hands relaxed across her belly. Louise put her ear to her grandma's mouth. Her black hair fell across Kirby's face as she felt for the warmth of her breath. And then she moved down to her chest and heard that fiddle loud and the clapping and boot stomping of her inside music. And like a song coming to its end, the music began to fade. The song of the old country, the song of old times and old places, of hardship and struggle and joy. And in Louise's own chest grew a grief so heavy she could hardly move, the shock so fierce she felt turned inside out. Her fingernails squeezed into the palms of her hands as she slowly sat back up. Fires once warm inside her. Fires lit because of her grandma Kirby. Began to burn out and smoke, turning to char and ash at the realization Kirby Dirk was dead. All the usual things happened after the lady next door screamed at the side of Kirby Dirk and ran to the phone. First it was the ambulance, the noise of radios and sirens and the stretcher dropping its legs. The paramedics pumped the old lady's chest hard. Louise looked away but made herself turn back. She watched the wind being pressed out of her grandma's chest. A sharp wind, fierce and swift, that smelled of peppermint. It wafted over to where Louise stood. "'She's still alive!' Louise yelled as she came closer. "'I can smell her!' "'Ma'am, step back. We've checked everything. Her pulse, her heartbeat, her breath. "'I'm really sorry!' "'a fresh-faced young man said "'as he took one big step toward Louise "'to keep her from coming any closer. "'Then it was the police and their questions. "'How did she fall? "'She stood on that ladder, pulled that board off that hole,' "'Louise said, pointing to the board and the ladder, "'strewn about the patchy yard and up at the hole in the house. "'She pulled too hard and fell off the ladder, and there she lay. "'She pointed at the pile of her grandma.' Louise stood on the sidewalk under the late spring sun. She did what she'd always done. She waited for her grandma Kirby. The reality of her death had not yet sifted all the way down through her. She waited for her to turn the corner and tell her what to do, who to call, where to go, but instead around the corner came a small gust of wind, swirling dead leaves, knocking over garbage cans, and making the dog in the yard next door bark and lunge on his chain. Children collected on the corner, watching five paramedics untangle Grandma Kirby from the plum trees. Out of her dress pockets fell a silver flask, her rosary, and a pocket knife. Louise picked up Kirby's things, the smell of peppermint still in the air. A police officer asked, "'Do you have anyone to come get you?' Just then Daniel arrived on his bicycle, pumping his 13-year-old legs." Behind him in her white Chevy Impala, Sylvie Dirk, Louise's aunt, came swerving down the block, causing her own wild wind, and signaling to Louise that soon enough, a family reunion and all the expected drama was about to begin. "'I'll walk home,' Louise said to him as she gathered her grandmother's things. She took one last look before they closed the body bag and saw her grandma was smiling, making it more unreal for Louise.' As they zipped the bag, closing inside of it the woman of Barnum neighborhood, the woman of the Barnum circus, the woman of the backdoor booze, the daughter of a coal miner, the woman of great heart and quick hands, full of stories and seeds, planted deep in the soil of Louise. The sound of the zipper made the air in her throat catch. Just then her son Daniel stood beside her, and Aunt Sylvie's car door slammed. Her high heels crunched the gravel. Louise turned home. Daniel walked his bicycle beside her. Aunt Sylvia yelled at Louise's back. Louise, wait! What the hell happened? Louise waved her arm but did not turn around. How could she say it? She refused to be the one to make real with her words what she could not accept. The sun began to move down in the sky, and it'd be hard on their heads as they walked a few blocks home. Louise smelled the sun in Daniel's hair, saw the way his hands gripped the handlebars as he pushed the bike, he kept asking her questions, but she could not hear enough to answer. Her own hands held the rosary, the flask, and the pocket knife. Her eyes were dry, and it surprised her. As her house came into view, she saw a small square of paper taped to the front door that flapped in the breeze. From the opposite direction, Bruce came barking down the street with her youngest boy, Timothy, running behind him. Bruce's mouth was white with foam from thirst. His eyes rimmed in red, and the hair on his back stood on end. Someone had been here, someone no one knew, and her children looked frightened. Timothy came panting behind Bruce. Mama, a man was just here with the clipboard, and put that on the door, he said, pointing at the door in the paper. We were looking for you. Daniel found me, sweetheart. Get Bruce some water, Louise said to him. Daniel dropped his bike in the yard and put his hands on Timothy's shoulders to talk to him. Louise walked up the sidewalk to the house, plucked the paper from the door. She heard Timothy wail, but the the grief still wouldn't knock loose from her chest, not even hearing Timothy cry. She read the note. This property must be vacant in thirty days. She read the smaller print, but assumed it was stuck to the wrong door, the wrong house, the wrong people. Then the wooden door swung open, the force of it so strong she felt sucked inside. Her hair blew in ahead of her as Jake stood looking down at her, his eyes full of tears. "'Grandma Kirby is dead?' Who told you that? I got a call at work, got home as fast as I could. He leaned down to hug Louise, opened his wide chest to her, but instead she stuck the note to his shirt pocket, pushed past him, past the ringing phone, through the kitchen to the backyard, past stacks of tires and the car on the trailer to the garden, the small patch of dirt Grandma Kirby had helped turn to the fence where they had visited almost every day. She sat in the tree stump and waited for the death of Grandma Kirby to settle inside her. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, Bill. I really want to say thank you for being a teacher for me. Bill. Thanks. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much. Uh, next up, uh, we have some nonfiction, and introducing our next reader will be Harrison Fletcher, who's an amazing writer himself. He's he's a poet, but he likes to write without line breaks, and that really bothers me. But um, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Um, a, an incredible teacher, and he's also pretty handsome too. I gotta say. So, um, Harrison Fletcher.
6: Hi everyone uh thanks for coming uh it's a it's a real pleasure and a privilege to uh to introduce uh, Christy Bailey um we've worked together a couple years now and uh and I can honestly say that she's uh in that time she's really shown me what it takes to be a memoirist she has uh honesty openness passion perseverance Humor, grace, and courage. She, uh, she has what it takes, in a, in a nutshell, to uh, to dive into the depths of your past and, and come out the other side. And she's done so beautifully on the page. And to, to show you what kind of writer and what kind of person she is, um, Christy's going to read an excerpt from her memoir in progress um, with a terrible... Cold which has stolen most of her voice. So Chrissy's gonna come up here and if she can't, you know, continue her passage, she's gonna hand off the manuscript to uh, the her wonderful and talented Andrew Dupree who will <laughs> step in. So let's hear it for Christy Bailey.
7: Okay. I really don't have much of a voice. I don't know if this is going to work or not. Can anybody hear me at all? We'll try it. I'm going to break a few rules because I need gum for moisture. (laughs) I don't think you're supposed to do that. Um, I guess what you need to know before the chapter is that I've just returned to the U.S. from Honduras after two years in the Peace Corps, and Panuelo... Girl is the name of my memoir, and Panuelo is the Spanish word for the uh, scarves that I wear, which I learned the word in Honduras. <clears throat> so this chapter is called The Rules, and it's an excerpt of the chapter. Let's see if I can even read it. <clears throat> the first week I'm back in Colorado, I see my dream job posted in the classified ads: Director of Recreation Marketing, ten years experience required. MBA preferred I would pictured the YMCA But this is better A college campus with fat oak trees Whose limbs shield out harsh realities The perfect transition job From Peace Corps to real world The ad is half the size of a business card But that's the appeal I'm done with big business And the rules that come with it Dress codes, power games Success measured only in dollars Small is cozy Small is good I imagine motivating people to get fit, stay fit, be fit, inspiring them with my marathon stories, convincing them they can do what they never thought they could. I imagine using the gym equipment on my lunch hour. I imagine wearing yoga pants to work and being one of many employees sporting a bandana. I form my cover letter immediately. As you will see from my resume, I am an excellent match for the position. I spout out my qualifications my MBA from a top 20 school, extensive marketing experience in Fortune 500 companies, the profitable triathlon I founded and directed in Honduras. I don't question the inclusion of MBA as a qualification for a local recreation center job. (laughs) I'm just glad I have one. (laughs) When I'm offered a phone interview, I'm not surprised. When I proceed to the next round, I am sure the job is mine. I take the first available interview slot four days away. I'm not even nervous until I receive the project in an email. Please develop a presentation that incorporates marketing strategies and their implementation that will help contribute to the overall vision, mission, and values of recreation at the center. The itinerary includes a 30-minute time slot for my presentation, followed by several interviews, an open forum Q&A with the entire staff, two tours, and dinner with the bigwigs. My stomach muscles clenched. The discomfort should alarm me, but I ignore it. I mistake the lurch in the pit of my belly for self-doubt. Not a warning sign, but a flaw to overcome. <laughs> I don't listen to the new tentative voice fighting to reach my conscious mind. My voice, finally separating itself from the others, whispering in my ear, walk away. <laughs> the time clock in my, lo- in my head drowns out that voice. I dive into the project. I research general trends in fitness and health, the local competition, where the center ranks among its competitors. I interview current and former members. I consult my old marathon trainer who now runs a fitness center in another state. For two days, I don't think about anything but my presentation. On the third day, the rules seep into my thoughts. Interview rule number one, wear a business suit. The year I graduated from business school and my sister from law school, we both bought interview suits. I selected a hunter green jacket with three brass buttons and a matching pencil skirt. You should get green too, I suggested to Melanie. It's fun and trendy, (laughs) but still professional. That's pretty out there, she said. I was thinking navy or black. What could I say? I didn't know the rules at law firms. Now, a friend who works as a career counselor tells me people don't wear suits to interviews anymore. Not at nonprofit organizations or universities, she says. Even a lot of big companies have transitioned to casual attire. What do they wear then? I ask. Dress pants and a cardigan. You'd wear a cardigan to a job interview? <laughs> of course, she says. I don't even own a suit anymore. <clears throat> I own two suits, a black suit dress with a matching jacket and a high-fashion chocolate brown suit. Both are left over from my corporate America days. I don't know what happened to the Hunter Green. Though my friend speaks with authority, she is no expert on the rules. Her top criteria for office wear is whether she can walk the two miles to and from work in it. This is not unusual in Colorado. But I can't imagine wearing anything but a business suit to an interview. Especially one which already feels as businessy as any corporate America environment I've ever stepped a leather mid heel pump into.
6: <laughs>
7: <laughs> Interview rule number two wear nice but conservative shoes, even if they hurt your feet. Closed toe shoes, heeled shoes, which always hurt my feet. Interview rule number three no gaudy earrings. That's easy. Heavy earrings cause small balls of God knows what to form under my skin. Interview rule number four. No visible body piercings beyond conservative earrings. Also easy. I don't have a nose or lip or eyebrow piercing, though I've secretly wanted a belly ring for years. (laughs) Interview rule number five. Neatly manicured, clean nails. I go to a salon for this, mostly to clean up what my teeth have done. I bite my nails. I know how that looks. In interviews, the rules aren't negotiable. Though some organizations are stricter than others, the Disney rulebook, for example, is notoriously rigid. Women must wear pantyhose when in skirt or dress. Men must have short hair and be clean shaven. No unnaturally colored hair for men or women. <laughs> Interview rule number six: neat professional hairstyle. I can choose a professional look. A black or brown panuelo instead of a red paisley bandana i can flatten the fabric over my scalp and tie the tails in a smooth knot but a neat professional panuelo is not the same as a neat professional hairstyle i don't know how to explain my panuelo to a search committee i don't know if i should explain it i'm not sure i should even wear a panuelo to a job interview Here's what you do, my friend Corey advises. In your introduction, you say, you're probably wondering why I've got this girlfriend. <laughs> I'm listening. And then you say, the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, you would say ladies and gentlemen? Yeah, no, 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 skip that part. You say, I have a condition that makes my body fight off my hair. The bad news is, I don't have hair. The good news is, I will never miss a day of work due to a bad hair day. that's pretty good, I say, chuckling for the first time in days. Wait, interjects Corey, who's now on a roll. You say three guesses as to why I've got this scarf on my head. (laughs) Then you point to someone at the table. Motorcycle chick, says the first dude. Wrong, you say. (laughs) Then point to the next guy. Cancer, he says. Wrong. (laughs) I interrupt no one's gonna say cancer they're not allowed to (laughs) maybe not but it would be hilarious she laughs you are too much i say that's why you love me says cory okay gotta go it's late here let me know what you decide oh and good luck tomorrow it's late here too at least it feels late the sun slipped behind the mountains to the west hours ago while i was still putting the finishing touches on my presentation Into the Google search box, I type interview rules on headscarves. My computer rewards me with 80,000 results. (laughs) Muslim women claiming their headscarves have prevented them from securing high visibility jobs. Hijab wearing girls suspended from school and sports teams. Entire countries banning headscarves inside their borders. How is it possible that a scrap of fabric could cause so much controversy? Why are women rejected by so many institutions simply for covering their heads? Of course, the answers aren't simple. The hijab isn't merely a scrap of fabric. It's a symbol, either of oppression or liberation, depending on which article you read. Maybe headscarves are never appropriate job interview attire. Maybe interviewers see them as irreverent and disrespectful, a screw you to the rules. Maybe the only exceptions are religion in cancer. And since my Panuelo doesn't appear to fit into the religious category, interviewers will automatically label me as a cancer patient. They won't ask, but they will make assumptions that could reduce my chances of getting the job. Interview rule number 12. Don't share personal, private, medical information. It's not that I mind talking about my alopecia. I just wonder whether I should. I wonder how to approach it. I wonder if maybe I'm making things harder for myself than I have to. But if I wear the fancy hair, and that's what I call my fancy wig, I'll feel like I've sold out, Penwello Girl for the big job, my self-identity, my feeling okay about not having hair, me being me, discarded for a title and a salary and a place in society.
1: Thank you, Christy. That was wonderful. Next up uh, is a poet. And um, if uh, her instructor were here, he would introduce her, but he's not here. Um, he's always out of town, which makes you think he's like in the CIA or something. <laughs> um, that instructor is David Rothman. And uh, so he sent along some notes um, to introduce uh, Jaden Lotito. Is that Jaden? Lo- Jaden. Jaden. Jay- Lotito. Lo-tito. <laughs>
6: All yeah. right, uh, again. <laughs> oh, great. Not J- Jaden. <laughs>
1: Anyways. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> she first appeared in, this is Rothman speaking, first appeared in my Lighthouse Versecraft courses a few years ago. She was highly observant. I could practically see the wheels turning in her mind, but she was reserved and poised to the point that I had no idea what she was thinking which is unusual for Rothman. (laughs) Over the years, her verse has become stronger and stronger and more and more intriguing. As you will see, it is filled with sensuousness and passion and is now executed with a great deal of craft. She is one of those poets whose art doesn't describe reality so much as it conjures with it to contribute something wild and new, in this case, something that is frequently romantic. Magic and enchantment lurk just beneath the surface, the way they do, say, in Yeats or Shelley. And perhaps this is appropriate for someone who makes her living as a, as an esthetician. Did I say that right? <laughs> as, as the, thank you. It wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past me. Coaxing beauty into the skin from what may indeed lie under it. I know that she intended to see you and has lived in France, but she is a bit mysterious. Like a piece of music by Debussy. Debussy? Rothman, I'm going to take him... Debussy? Is that how you pronounce it? Right? Debussy? Yeah, it. Yeah. Debussy? I'm from Buffalo. In Buffalo we say Debussy. So. Perhaps you will make you a bit more mysterious yourselves. Enjoy. Uh-huh. J. <laughs> okay, I have um,
3: four poems And the first one's called um, To Speak of Things. How did I learn to speak of things, their names? I learned to love things first by name, this first. These names I learned then soon became the games that play themselves, make my tongue ache with thirst to use to say these words. Just air they burst light the cold sky and tether what exists To here right here life's show of what resists Um, the next one's called um, up happens Up happens when down cannot restrain itself up might arch A back in love, a neck in joy Up heaves high dark eyes that seek solace in stars Up opens fists to cradle a head that hangs down Okay, this one's called um, Unopened Letter You spoke to me, I did not see you there. I turned to you, a seedling wooed by sun. A listening bloomed and caught me unaware. Your words sound sparks against a night undone. Unguarded we began, a lucid burn. Kindled two minds, emboldened two to see. Intricate, like rare clockwork you turn and chance wakes fortune, brings you next to me. But now ideas of you must bear me through this drought of flesh while if and when decide. Time, loyal time, let it bring me to you and open my unopened letter wide. Invisible, I write my mind's one thought, that words might keep you when my hands cannot. Um, The last one's called uh, Tumble and Turn. What moves, moves faster downhill, Slides the land beneath me swift, With each tumble and turn, Legs free forget the earth and how to stand, Friction on flesh blooms heat, Begins a burn too hot to stop, it seeks the wicked calm one finds in landslide and the singing psalm. The sky happens and passes by, blurred blue, as I now fly, a strange bird without wings. Perpetual motion, I fall and view all pass until stillness arrives and flings rocks, dirt, My body moves like lullaby. We fall, made real, and still, all else goes by. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I wish you had more. Do you have any more? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any more? Encore! Encore! <laughs> by the book, by the book, yes. Uh, last up, we have um, an amazing reader, and a very handsome guy himself, uh, Jim Ringel. Um, and he's, uh, he's in Erica Krause's class. She lives in Netherlands, so she's probably piled <laughs> under with snow. Um, so, Andrew Dupree is going to introduce her. Um, so, please um, welcome Andrew Dupree.
8: Huh. if you're into height
3: <laughs>
8: can I first say just wow about Jaden and Taryn and Christy yeah. I know you guys already got applause but I just felt like you needed a little bit more um, and yes, Erica Krauss is the instructor who has Jim in her class. It's a point of contention. He sometimes takes mine. <laughs> it's okay. I encourage people to take other instructors. <laughs> Um, But Jim Ringle is somebody who's very, very close to my heart. And I was thinking, um, Mario is here, Mario Acevedo. And he's teaching a workshop on keeping it fresh, which is relevant. This isn't a paid advertisement. Um, It's all about people doing the unexpected rather than the expected um, if water started flooding down in here, that would be unexpected to me, but it sounds like it might happen. <laughs> but I met Jim Ringel several years ago, and he was working on a novel, and he had an agent, and he did some readings at Lit Fest. Thoroughly entertaining. And he signed up for my workshop in short story, and I thought it was going to be the same kind of, um, he had, a, he, he, you were writing a speculative novel about a, a oh, another world, a salesman. <laughs> a salesman in another world. And, um, for example, there were, well, werewolves and things that you might not see in this world.
1: Werewolf salesman.
8: Kind of. A heartbroken one. Yeah. Um, And I quickly learned, I I quickly started associating Jim with kind of this New Jersey, actually Boston, but I found out it was New Jersey, um, baseball kind of guy's guy thing, which you did like a hard-boiled story or two, which was so funny, so smart. So full of things that, that you care about when you're reading. I always want to feel like I'm in the hands of a writer who knows stuff. And he knows stuff. Jim Ringel knows stuff. And then he informed me, can't take the Thursday night class because of my Buddhism. <laughs> That's I'm just telling you like it is. Um, here's, here's what Erica said. I was talking to Jim about trying to sell my house to a nasty buyer, and he said, she'll only realize she's won if everyone's bleeding. <laughs> he was inadvertently describing his own anti heroes who claim victory at any price from their own wreckage. Jim blends horror with humor, with pathos, with stunted idealism, and at the psychological heart of his work, it's love. Bruised and abused love that's at stake. Jim Ringel.
2: Uh, I'm going to read a short story I wrote uh, in a workshop with Andrea and then later with Erica. <laughs> right. And the story's called Thomas and David. There were moments when Thomas just couldn't stand the sight of David. The way he wore his Marilyn Monroe morning coat down the driveway in the morning to fetch the paper, (laughs) letting it rise up over the crack of his ass for the whole neighborhood to see. (laughs) Thomas could almost hear the neighbors whispering how he and David were gay. Whenever he could corner them alone, without David, on their way out to work or while walking their dogs... He'd explain that he and David were, in fact, roommates. Yes, well, my roommate, you might have seen him. He likes reading his paper in the morning, Thomas would say. (laughs) Reads it over coffee. But that was just bullshit. Bullshit he told the neighbors and bullshit he told himself. He didn't think of himself as gay, even even if he and David did have sex together sometimes. Thomas brushed a sweep of blonde hair from his eyes. He'd met David the first night he'd arrived in town and had gone home with him soon after. That was six weeks ago. Now David stood at the stove pawing a spatula through a skillet of tapatio, peppers, and eggs, pawing his other hand through the paper. You seen Beetle Bailey yet this morning, David asked? That fucking Otto, how can that fucker be in the funny paper so long and never ever once be funny? (laughs) He slapped the paper down on the range, knocking over the Tapatio bottle so that it bloodied up Dilbert. (laughs) Then the paper started smoldering from the flame beneath the eggs. God damn it, David whacked the paper with the skillet. Fucking thing's on fire here. (laughs) Thomas held tight onto his alcohol headache. He could feel the bump of pimples sprouting along uh, along his hairline. Sun seared through the kitchen blinds. The whole place smelled of butter and sweaty clothes. (laughs) To Thomas, lately, that's how all Saturdays smelled. (laughs) Like time he'd never get back again. They'd gone out with the fellas last night and tricked it. They danced every dance. Tricking, David teased, because the way we dance, it's like I own you. No, you don't, Thomas said. Still, there was something he liked about it, the command David showed the way he'd dawdle over Thomas, the way he cared, like he'd put himself in charge of caring, maybe because he was older, maybe as much as ten years older, Thomas thought, and he wondered if there was something wrong with that, the difference in their ages. He watched David work in the eggs. He thought David looked paunchy. (laughs) What, David asked. You think I shocked the Navy poos with my outfit? Or you don't like eggs anymore? You think I should put cheese in them? What What are you looking at me for? You're getting fat, Thomas said. David twisted his face up laughing. Fuck you, he said, fat. (laughs) You are, Thomas replied. Yeah, well, give it time, David suggested. I haven't had my morning fart yet. (laughs) That's always good for knocking off a few pounds. It was stuff like that that made Thomas wonder why he just didn't leave. David spooned the eggs onto some dirty plates he'd pulled from the sink. The egg stuck to the pan, solid and brown, but he and the spatula managed it. The kitchen smelled of Pam burning off the frying pan back into its original gaseous state. (laughs) Soup's on, except it's eggs, David said. (laughs) Pushing a plate at Thomas, and then he fingered up morsels of his own serving and sucked on them. Yeah, well this ain't working out, Thomas said. (laughs) He dropped the plate down onto the countertop. It had the dull ping of corningware atop Formica. Not working out, David chomped. His teeth appeared yellow and scrambled. It's eggs. Make some more. Make something else. I don't care. I'm not gay, Thomas told him. What? David put down his plate. He pulled a paper towel off the rack and across his lips. The fuck you're not gay? No, I'm not, Thomas said. I mean, it's not like I'm in love or anything. David spit into his paper towel. Shell, he explained. And then, who's talking about love? Love. Love's something they tell you to make you behave. It's something out in the distance where you can't get at it. Love doesn't make you gay. Doesn't make you straight either. Makes you cuckoo, I'll give you that. (laughs) He formed a limp power fist. Sex, that's what makes you gay. (laughs) Thomas could see where David's chin had grease on it from the Pam floating by. Look, Thomas, David said. I like you, if that's what you're asking. It doesn't have to be love. Not yet. Thomas pulled himself away. I need to leave. Oh, don't do that, David said. Look, you had a lot to drink last night. You're hungover, and it hurts. I get that. Hell, I'm a little hungover, too. You probably got a headache, right? There was still egg where his one tooth was not perfectly aligned with the other. (laughs) Thomas grabbed his car keys. He pushed the back screen door open and stepped outside. Come on, what's that, David asked. Where are you going? Out, Thomas said. I'm going out. It was full glare roasting outside. The driveway and the sidewalks bounced back up bright, making Thomas squint. He felt the slap of flip-flop sweating against the soles of his feet. His mattress shorts bloomed sufficiently baggy, so what little breeze the day could muster lapped up into his crotch and relieved its sweaty dampness. <laughs> he went to the street where he'd parked the Wrangler and folded back its roof, removed its plastic windows, and stashed them in the back seat. The air hung muggy and still, but a Jeep ride with the top down, that was just the thing for chasing off a hangover. He'd drive to the mountains where the air could feel invigorating. He'd stay off the interstate and take the highway through the Indian reservation. Driving always gave new life, Thomas thought, or at least sometime between one thing and another. He dropped the Wrangler into reverse and wheeled it back against the curve. David came up the sidewalk along the passenger side. He'd thrown on sweatpants and a Dvotchka t shirt. Look, Thomas, if there's something I shouldn't have said, I'm sorry. I mean, I guess I didn't get that about you, about what you wanted. And that's my bad. That's on me. But let me just say, you take off, you go driving wherever you're going. I think we should talk. That's all. Don't go. That's what I'm saying. I'd like it better if we talked. Thomas checked that the passenger door was locked so David couldn't climb in. (laughs) We'll talk, he shouted. Later. He shouted like he was having a hard time hearing over the Wrangler's cranked engine but that was just bullshit. He could hear just fine, like saying they'd talk later. That was bullshit, too. We'll talk, he said again, and grounded his then grounded into first, pulling away from the curb. On the highway, the Wrangler wasn't fast. He was an in Indian country now. The passing vehicles had all turned into pickup trucks. Mm-hmm. It was a different world, something he could get lost in. As the planes began lifting up into the mountains, the pickups turned off down side roads, Suddenly, the trip felt lonely, with moist air and descending clouds falling down upon him. He was steadily climbing. His shorts and T-shirt felt stiff in the breeze, and he'd wished he'd brought an anorak or some rain gear. He cranked up the Wrangler's heat and faced its vents down at his flip-flops. In the rear view, he saw a pickup approaching. The road had grown narrower. He and David had driven up here once for a concert at Old Grand, and Thomas remembered that the two lanes eventually dropped into one. He heard the wah-wah sound of a steel pedal guitar echoing in the canyon. He adjusted the radio dial, wondering if some station was leaking through, but the radio wasn't even on. The pickup kept coming up the left lane. Thomas saw people sprouting from its back bed like dandelions on a summer lawn. When the pickup hit a bump in the road, the passengers all jumped, bounced hard, and then Thomas heard the wah-wah was coming from them. The pickup was blowing its horn, trying to get his attention. Thomas slowed some more. The truck came closer, and then up alongside him. He could see now that they were all compañeros in the truck, men and women coming off their outside jobs, drinking and yelling at him. Hey, white boy! Gringo! Pud snapper! He wanted to pull back ahead of the pickup, had him off where the road narrowed, but he worried the Wrangler didn't have the giddy-up. He shifted it down a bit slower so the truck might pull away. Kimosabi! A dark skinned, dark haired fat man leaned out the passenger window. He waved an empty whiskey bottle at Thomas. White lightning, kimosabi! He waved the bottle in one hand and with the other hand gave Thomas the finger. Then he tossed the bottle against the Wrangler's hood. Thomas heard it kerplunk the car's metal and then smash upon the pavement. He worried about his tires. The fat man grinned a big, drooly grin. The pickup had slowed to Thomas's speed and the merge to one lane was coming up. The men and women in the back all whooped. They lit firecrackers and threw them at Thomas. He swerved, and the pickup swerved with him, forcing him from the road. The Wrangler rumbled over rock until Thomas managed to back up onto the highway. The people in the pickup all laughed, and seeing them, Thomas tried laughing too, but it felt frozen and not quite real. They gave him the finger, and Thomas gave them a thumbs up. (laughs) Yeah, he yelled, grinning as big as he could. The road squeeze was right there, one lane only, 50 yards ahead. As they approached, Thomas jammed the Wrangler's brakes hard, giving the pickup the right of way. Except as he stopped, the pickup stopped too, just in front of him, blocking the road. He jammed the brakes harder to avoid its rear end. The men and women in the back all swayed, woozing from the ride. He half expected them to topple out onto his hood. The pickup's driver's door opened fast, A wiry brown man came out with a mustache that barely reached the the edges of his mouth. "'What the fuck?' he yelled. He was coming hard at Thomas. From the passenger side, the fat man who'd thrown the bottle out, he he got out. And a skinny little squaw girl with him. And the fat man carried a baseball bat. "'What the fuck?' the driver yelled again. He came up fast on Thomas, scrunching scrunching Thomas towards the console and into the passenger seat. "'You cut me off,' Thomas said. "'You give me the finger?' The man sprayed Thomas as he spoke. The spray smelled like beer and cigarettes. Crap-ass car. Would your parents buy this for you? Then he slapped the back of his palm against Thomas's shoulder. Get out. Thomas looked at the passenger door, wanting to escape. The fat man stood there and the girl alongside him. She had hoop earrings and a wide jaw that made her, lap, her, made her mouth look clownish and lipstick. The fat man held the baseball bat, each end in one hand. No, Thomas turned back to the driver. You cut me off. I just want to get going. The passengers and the pickup all murmured. The fat man dropped the bat's tip against the wrangler's fender. Thomas heard that the bat was metal. The fender pinged like a pistol shot within close range. The fat man said, he told you to get out of the car. The girl pulled out a strand of her hair long in front of her face. Her eyes crossed so that they could each see it. And she twisted that length of hair. Her cheeks were purple with acne. Shut the fuck up, the driver told the fat man. Then he turned back to Thomas. You want to give me the finger, you get the fuck out of that car and give me the finger. No man, Thomas said, looking to the ones in the pickup, to the fat man, the girl, the driver. I didn't give you the finger. He was spacing his words out so as not to upset anyone. I gave you a thumbs up. Thumbs up? The driver whined, a bad imitation of Thomas, of Thomas's nervousness. What the fuck's a thumbs up? Anyone here tell me what the fuck a thumbs up is? The men and women on the pickup all grumbled. No, they'd never given anybody a thumbs up before. <laughs> the fat man stared at Thomas. The girl kept twisting her hair in her braid. Thomas wanted her to stop, wanted her to look at him. He wanted her to tell her boyfriend, the driver, whatever he was, let's just get out of here. But she never did. It's a good luck thing, Thomas said. You know, like, good luck. He showed him the gesture, sticking his thumb up in the air. The driver slapped it. Get the fuck out of here, thumbs up. Get out of that car. <laughs> he grabbed he, he punched at Thomas's shoulder and started pulling him. Thomas braced his grip on the steering wheel, resisting. The fat man leaned in from the passenger side, butting the baseball bat against Thomas's ribs, gently at first, like a nudge, and then harder, pushing until he broke Thomas's hold. Then the driver full Nelson to Thomas and pulled him out over the top of the door. "'He swung him around away from the Wrangler "'and slammed them to the ground. "'Then he pulled him back upright. "'The driver was scrawny. "'Anger was everything he had. "'What the fuck's a thumbs up?' "'He slapped Thomas across the face. "'Once, and then again. "'Huh? Dolores, you tell me. "'What the fuck's a thumbs up?' "'The woman twisting her hair looked up. "'The braid pulled out long down the center of her face. "'Something faggy,' she said. "'She pulled her hair tighter and resumed twisting.' Sounds like something faggy, you ask me. That it, the driver asked Thomas. You a faggy boy? He slapped Thomas again, harder now. Faggy white boy come out here to the res. He jammed his fingers into Thomas's ribs where the baseball bat had punched. Thomas dropped. The man kept stabbing at him, quick thrusts. Then he spiked Thomas in the stomach with his boot tip. Thomas felt it steal, the way it ripped his skin. He tried looking up from the gravel. He was shaking, and he thought if the driver could just see him, perhaps he'd get back in his pickup and drive away, leaving him there, beaten. The driver cuffed him across the face. Stop looking at me, faggy boy. I fuck women, see? His kicking felt like a knife blade, over and over again, until Thomas spit up blood, and then collapsed. Then the fat man with the baseball bat came over, alongside Thomas, and butted him between the shoulder blades, pinning him to the dirt. Stay down, he said. And tell your friends, we don't want no faggy boys coming out here to the Reds. The Wrangler was damaged. On the passenger side, it sounded like the running board was dragging. But Thomas wanted out of there, and the car drove okay, so he managed to hunch himself over the wheel and back to an emergency room in the city. There, he took, they, There they took his insurance information, his local address and phone number, and then they took his story. Afterwards, they told him to wait outside in the waiting room with the others. There were magazines, but Thomas could not bring himself to read one. He sat curled into a plastic chair that was hooked at its edge to all the other plastic chairs in his row. His breathing hurt. His one eye was swollen, and his vision felt bad. Blood throbbed inside his head. He lifted his T-shirt and saw that he was purple from his chest down to his stomach. You're bleeding inside. Thomas looked up and saw a young girl sitting across from him. She was with her grandfather, or a man who looked to be her grandfather. The man's mouth curled in on itself like it had no teeth, and he stared at Thomas without blinking, without saying anything, and without changing his expression. When you're purple like that, that means you're bleeding inside, the girl said. She was scrawny, her hair grew in patches, and her skin had a bluish tinge like the color of thin milk. Don't worry, she said. You'll be okay once the doctor sees you. That's why I'm here, so the doctor can see me. Thomas looked from the girl to the old man. The old man kept staring, not talking, like he hadn't heard what the girl had said. Thomas wanted to ask the man what was wrong with her, what it was she had. But he didn't like the way the old guy just stared, like it was Thomas who looked sickly and not his granddaughter. Why is he looking at me like that, Thomas asked. He doesn't like you. "'He thinks you're going to die. "'But you'll be okay,' the girl replied. "'The doctor will see you, and then you'll be yourself again. "'You want to be yourself again, don't you?' "'At that moment, David came through the revolving doors "'from the parking lot into the waiting room. "'The hospital must have called him. "'He hadn't combed his hair or washed it, and he looked puffed. "'My God,' he said to Thomas, "'look at you, are you all right? "'Has the doctor been here? "'Has anybody seen you? "'What about the cops?' "'I'm waiting.' "'Thomas tried smiling.' "'but his teeth felt loose between sips of blood. "'He thought it good David had come, "'seeing that David had come to check on him. "'It's a waiting room, so I'm waiting. "'Maybe that's the cure. "'Oh, Thomas, God. "'David sat in the chair next to him. "'He massaged the back of Thomas's neck "'and pulled their foreheads together. "'I have to say, you look awful. "'I know I always tell you what a cute guy you are, "'but really, right now, you look awful. "'Thanks, Thomas coughed. "'Coming from you, that means everything.' Yeah, right. You know, I don't even know what to do. David peered, a, peered, pressed himself closer. Sitting here like this, I wish I could help. I just don't know what to do. I should go find a doctor. That's something, right? David stood up. Go find a doctor. This is bullshit making you sit here like this. This is bullshit. I'm going to go find you a doctor. David left. Thomas wished he had thought of that. Going to find a doctor. telling him to hurry it up. Is that your boyfriend? The girl asked. Thomas looked at her and then at her grandfather. The man hadn't moved, still hadn't said anything. He kept staring at Thomas, like he was even more disgusted now than before. He's right, you know, the girl said. You look awful, but maybe it doesn't matter because he's your boyfriend, and it doesn't matter how you look. Thomas tried smiling for her, but it hurt, so he stuck out his tongue instead. Then he nodded at her grandfather. What's with him? The girl looked at the old man. She said... Grandpa doesn't like gay people. She said it without flinching, as if it was easy. Maybe when you're sick like she is, you just don't care how you put things. Maybe by the time you're dying, you've heard it all anyway, and you just don't care, even if you're a kid. He doesn't know that, Thomas said. When the girl didn't answer, he added, and he shouldn't stare. It's not right. You know how people get, she shrugged. They see something they don't like, it makes them stare. People like uncomfortable stuff to look at. Behind the glass partition, David argued with the nurse, the tight-wrapped one in the sweater in charge of insurance claims. As his voice grew louder, the old man winced. If we're so uncomfortable, Thomas said, then maybe he just shouldn't look at us. He turned his bad eye into a full view of the old man. I mean, he doesn't know us. The girl didn't say anything. Behind the partition, David pounded his palm down on the nurse's desk. You hear me, old man, Thomas blurted? Stop looking at me. The man shook his head like an animal who'd just been awoken. He blinked, and Thomas yelled again, If you don't like what you're seeing, then just don't look at me. Thank you. Mm
1: -hmm. Wow. Quite a trip. Thank you to all all of our readers. Wonderful job. Let's give them a hand.
0: Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members and funders and listeners just like you who support the cause. We're grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. And if you need some more information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement, check out our website, lighthousewriters.org.